So let's take our Bibles tonight, turn to the book of Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. Anybody know what Ecclesiastes means? That's a good word. If you think of, uh, if you know Spanish, you know the word iglesia, which means church. And uh, in the New Testament, the Greek word for church is ecclesia, which sounds similar to iglesia. And Ecclesiastes kind of sounds like uh, something to do with church, but it's not specifically referring to the church. You say, I thought the church wasn't talked about until Acts 2. That'd be correct. But in Ecclesiastes, there may be in your Bible under the title, it might say something like Ecclesiastes or the preacher, the preacher. And uh, so in this book, we are listening to a wonderful, inspired sermon, a message that God has for us, and uh, I hope it'll be helpful for us as we continue to study through this. We started into Ecclesiastes a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'm really excited about our study together. Did everybody get some notes, by the way? There were some being handed out as you walked in. If you didn't get some and you'd like some, go ahead and grab some. Or, or raise your hand, somebody can pass you one. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, we started out a couple weeks ago looking at the opening of chapter 1 and sort of his summary idea that everything's vanity, there's nothing new under the sun, life is empty, there's no purpose to it. And this week we're going to get a little bit deeper into that. Because the reality is, if you become like this preacher, who we believe to be Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, if you sit back and you think through all of life, and that's what he's going to do for us in the book of Ecclesiastes, he's going to consider all kinds of different things. And Tonight we're going to see some of those things he's going to consider. For example, he's going to, we're going to consider with him tonight, well, what if I gave my life to wisdom? I mean, I just studied and learned and I went to school and got PhDs and advanced degrees and I wrote books and I studied books and I read everything that there is to read, will I be able to discover the true meaning of life? Some people think that's the way to enlightenment, right? It's through study, through wisdom. He's also going to consider, he kind of goes the complete opposite of wisdom. He says, I'm just going to follow after madness and folly. You know, I'm just going to go after just craziness. I'm just going to live my life to the fullness. I'm going to, you know, in our modern day and age, it might be like, I'm going to jump off buildings with a parachute. I'm going to go bungee jumping. I'm going to go skydiving. I'm going to do anything that I can do to get the adrenaline rush and just fill my life. And that's how I'm going to find fulfillment. And he's going to consider that. Then he's going to kind of go in between and say, you know, it's not about this, it's about what you can build. Building big buildings or studying music or different creative pursuits. Maybe the way to life and happiness fulfillment is through creativity and leaving a legacy and, you know, build, building up riches and putting your name on a building somewhere or being a great architect and designing beautiful buildings or a wonderful artist and painting pictures that are going to hang in galleries for 
generations. What's really the purpose of life? I've titled the message tonight, The Search for Satisfaction. The Search for Satisfaction. I mean, people are all searching for satisfaction. If I said, how many of you are searching for satisfaction tonight? I think if we're honest, we'd all raise our hand. We're all looking to be satisfied. I mean, who lives their life to be unsatisfied on purpose, right? People are trying to find satisfaction somewhere, somehow, some way. And that, yet you look, I mean, you could just walk down the street here that our church is on and every person you talk to would have maybe a little bit I- a different idea of what would bring satisfaction. And even though some of us might all say the same things, if you look at our life choices, the things we spend our time on, our money on, our energy doing, you would be able to define by spending a little bit of time with each one of us how we really felt like we were going to find satisfaction. And yet if we took a poll around the world today and say, how many of you are really satisfied with your life? I think we'd probably find that a lot of people would say they weren't satisfied with their life. But aren't you thankful that God's Word has the answers? It does, even to this issue of satisfaction and fulfillment and completion. So let's look at this beginning in verse 12 tonight. 1 through 11 is kind of the introduction to the book. But verse 12, he's reiterating who is writing this book. We see this in verse 1, the words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. That's why we know it's Solomon. But then he reiterates who he is in verse 12. I, the preacher, was king over Israel in Jerusalem. So our first point tonight, we we want to think about who the seeker of satisfaction is. Because Solomon's writing this in the first person. Okay, So he is the seeker. And I think it's interesting that he calls himself here the preacher once again. Because who do we think of as a preacher? Well, a preacher is somebody who declares a message, right? There's somebody who hopefully is proclaiming the truth. But really the idea is not so much of whether it's truth or not, it's just that he's proclaiming a message. But see, a preacher can proclaim any message, right? It it doesn't have to be his own message. But I think the fact that he reiterates the fact that he's also king is to tell us this is not just someone else's message that he's here to tell you about. He's here to share with us his own personal experience. Because he's the king, see? He had... The Bible tells us he was the wisest man who ever lived. The Bible tells us he had all the money that he could ever need or want. He was wealthier than anybody that lived. So this was a man who had the means to pursue all kinds of different stuff. Things that you and I could only imagine doing, Solomon had the ability to go out and do it. He could afford to. So things that we could say, well, if I had fill in the blank, then maybe I'd be satisfied. Solomon could actually go and experience that because he could have whatever he wanted to have. See, for us sometimes we live in this place of we don't have satisfaction and we know we aren't satisfied, but we blame it on the fact that, well, it's just because I can't really have what I want to have. Solomon, on the other hand, this seeker, this was a guy that could have whatever the world offered. He could have it all. And in fact, he tried just about everything that could be tried and tasted and enjoyed to see if it would bring satisfaction. So it's important that we understand in beginning tonight who the seeker is, where he's coming from, that he's sharing really his own personal experience with us. So then in the next few verses, he gives to us, verses 13 through 15, a summary, the summary of 
really the book and of his thought and of this message that he has to share. Sometimes preachers do that, right, at the beginning of the message. They'll give you a little summary, kind of where it's going by way of introduction, and then they'll dig into the points and kind of, kind of expound on those ideas for you, and then they bring it all back around at the end. And so that's what we're going to see tonight. We've seen who the seeker is, that's Solomon, and then we're going to get a little summary of his message. Then he's going to give us a sampling. He's going to go through these different ways of looking at life. And then in the end, he's going to give us his assessment of it all. So let's see the summary that he gives us here. Look at verse 13. He says, And I gave my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. That's a, that's a big word there, all, right? All things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. He calls this, this process of searching out everything under heaven and looking at all that there is in the world. He says, this is a sore travail. It's a lot of work. Verse 14, I have seen... All the works that are done under the sun. Here's his conclusion. Behold, all is vanity. That means it's just empty. And it's not just empty. He says it's vexation of spirit. If your spirit is vexed, that means it's troubled. It's hurting. Solomon says, I I looked around at everything that there was to be looked at. And it was just empty. And in fact, it, it it troubled me on the inside. There are a lot of people living like that. Maybe in some areas of your life, you're living like that right now. You look around at your life. You look around what you have. You look around at what you've experienced up to that point and and maybe what the future might hold. And you say, what is the point? Well, I don't know if this is good news or bad news, but you have fellowship in that group of people because this is where Solomon was at. That's where a lot of people live. Look at verse 15. He gives us a, A nice word picture here. He says, that which is crooked cannot be made straight. That which is wanting cannot be numbered. So as he summarizes this for us, he really gives us three ideas here. First of all, because of the fall, and by the fall I mean when mankind sinned, when Adam and Eve sinned in the garden, broke God's law, they fell, they, they fell into sin. Because of the fall, life brings travail. He talks about that in verse 13. He says, "My heart to see, I gave my heart to seek out and search by wisdom concerning all things that are done under heaven. This sore travail hath God given to the sons of man to be exercised therewith. This is something that comes from God. And in one sense, he's not giving us the full picture here, but he's hinting at something positive because it's something that came from God. It's positive because if we're searching for purpose and satisfaction, this says, wait a minute, there's a higher power that has a purpose. I may not understand it. I may not be able to wrap my head around it. I might not even like it. But there is some kind of purpose out there because God has set us to this. But because of the fall, because of sin, it's now travail. Remember, God gave work. There was jobs for people to do. Adam had a job before Adam ever sinned. 
So work is not the travail. The fact that I have to work is not a bad thing. God gave us all responsibilities. He gave us purpose. He, gave us all, he gives us all jobs to do, and that's a good thing. But because of the fall, because of sin, life brings travail. The second idea there, because of the fall, all work is pointless. Right? You can work and work. That's what he says in verse 14. I've seen all the works that are done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and vexation of spirit. You can work hard. You can do your very best, and it still be empty. And thirdly, because of the fall, we are broken. We are crooked, and we are wanting means we're empty. One commentator I read said it this way, you can't straighten out that which is crooked and you can't count what isn't there. That's what he's saying here. And that which is wanting cannot be numbered. We might say don't count your chickens before they hatch, right? You can't count something that isn't there. A New Testament verse that I think has an interesting parallel here is found in Romans chapter 8 and verse 20. And this again brings us back to God's purpose in all this. Well, if all we, had, if all we read is up to this point, we won't understand it fully. We can see a bit of it here. Romans 8, 20 says, For the creature was made subject to vanity, not willingly, but by reason of him who hath subjected the same in hope. So think about that. Who was the creature? I'm the creature. You're the creature. We're created by God. We're creatures. It says the creature was made subject to vanity. So we are now a servant to, if you will, vanity. When we look at life, we say it's empty, it's pointless. And we didn't do that willingly. We didn't want to live that way. He says... It was not willingly. You say, you mean God is forcing us to see that life is empty? He's forcing us to see that? Yes. Because He wants you and me and everybody to realize life is pointless without Him. It is empty without Him. And you can work and you can work and you can try and you can run around and you can do everything you want. But it's going to be empty without the Lord. And, and that's not something we do willingly, right? It, it, it's, it's hard for us. It brings vexation of spirit. But notice it says, but by reason of Him, that's God, who hath subjected the same. But I love the last two words of Romans 8.20. He says, in hope. See, God's not just mean to you to make you feel like everything around you is worthless. God's doing it for a purpose, in hope. What's the hope? The hope is, is that you would turn to Him, that you would find eternal life, that you would find fulfillment and satisfaction. And think about this, eternal life, we often as Christians think of eternal life as something that just happens someday when this life is over and I get to heaven. I want you to think about eternal life as a sense of true life is in Christ. Sure, there's an eternal aspect to it that when I die, this body goes in the ground, but my soul lives forever in heaven with God. But even in this life, right here, right now, with all the problems and all the frustrations, all the discouragements and trouble, there's still purpose. I have life in Christ. So we see here this summary of his message. So now let's jump into a little bit more of the meat of 
his message tonight. Let's see this sampling that he gives us of life. I'm going to read a little chunk here. I want you to follow along beginning in verse 16. He says, I communed with mine own heart. So he's thinking. He says, saying, lo, I am come to great estate. So what had happened to him? He had lots of money. Okay? He had lots of power. He controlled lots of things. He says, and have gotten more wisdom than all they that have been before me in Jerusalem. Solomon says, I've become wiser than anybody else that's ever lived here. Okay? He says, yea, my heart had great experience of wisdom and knowledge. In verse 17, and I gave my heart to know wisdom. So this is the first area that he's going to really dig into. Wisdom, knowing wisdom. And to know madness and folly. Okay, that's the opposite of wisdom. And I perceived, he says, that this also is vexation of spirit. Verse 18, for in much wisdom is much grief. Wow. Thank you for encouraging us tonight, Pastor. What are we doing here? This is grief. But isn't it though, sometimes it's nice to be naive? It feels good not to really know what's going on in the world. Because you think it's better than it really is. Sometimes the more you know, the more discouraging it is. Well, that's really how those people are? They're really doing that? This is what's really going on? That's really what's behind this? Then, it start, then we start to get scared and we start to get upset and we start to get discouraged and get depressed. Knowledge and wisdom is not always a blessing. We often think of it as... But in and of itself, it's not. And again, Solomon's speaking about this stuff as apart from God because there's something very important here that he leaves out about wisdom and knowledge. He mentions it, though, in another book that Solomon wrote over in the book of Proverbs. Can anybody remember what he talks about where real wisdom and knowledge comes from, the beginning of it? Where does it come from? The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord. If you notice, he leaves that out here. Because he's not speaking about godly wisdom. He's not speaking about the godly way of perceiving and looking at the world. He's talking about man's wisdom. He's saying, I, I went after everything that was considered wise to man. Listen, that's why science doesn't always like to line up with what the Bible says. Science is not all bad. Science is a, is a wonderful study. You can learn a lot through science. But there are scientists that refuse to believe that there's a God. And so therefore, they're going to interpret facts in a way that negates or ignores God. Just because someone says they're really wise doesn't actually make them smart. <laughs> it might be smart, right? They have ability, but it doesn't make them have the doesn't mean they're right. Right? Just because somebody has a lot of study and ability doesn't mean that. What they're saying is true. Because if the fear of the Lord is not the beginning of their knowledge and their wisdom, now they've got the wrong starting point. So he says, He that increaseth knowledge, I'm finishing verse 18, increaseth sorrow. Keep reading then. Well, let's just say it this way. Let me fill in that first sub point there. Here's the question Does wisdom bring fulfillment? 
In and of itself, the answer is no. That's what he's telling us here in verses 16 through 18. Then he moves into chapter 2, verse 1. He says, I said in my heart, go to now, I will prove thee with mirth. All right, it's not about wisdom. How about mirth? Let's just, let's go enjoy good comedy. Let's laugh. Let's have a good time. Let's party. He says, I will prove thee with mirth. Therefore, endure pleasure and behold, this also is vanity. I said of laughter, it is mad. And of mirth, what doeth it? What's the point of it? Verse 3, I sought in my heart to give myself unto wine, yet acquainting mine heart with wisdom, and to lay hold on folly, till I might see what was that good for the sons of men, which they should do under the heaven all the days of their life. Second question, does madness and folly bring fulfillment? Answer is no. Living for yourself, pure hedonism, He says, giving yourself to wine, making yourself laugh. It's empty. Because at some point the laugh stops. At some point you wake up with the hangover. At some point you find yourself running to do things and you say, what was the point of that? I just got to do that over and over again. Then in verses 4 through 11, he goes into the next area. He says, verse 4, I made me great works. I builded me houses. I planted me vineyards. I made me gardens and orchards, and I planted trees in them of all kind of fruit. I made me pools of water to water wherewith the wood that bringeth forth trees. I mean, think about this. He, he plants gardens and vineyards and orchards. Then he says, oh, I planted all that stuff. Now let me come up with a new way to irrigate it all. So I'm going to spend more time and more energy coming up with a way, you know, if I can grow more crops and get things more profitable. And, you know, if I can grow two blades of grass where it used to be just one blade of grass, you know, if I can get the corn to yield more than it did before, if I can grow more grapes than we grew before, all this stuff. He says, I did all of that. Then in verse 7, he says, I got me servants and maidens, and had servants born in my house. Also, I had great possessions of great and small cattle above all that were in Jerusalem before me. I was the wealthiest king in all of Jerusalem. He says, I gathered me also silver and gold, and the peculiar treasure of kings and of the provinces. I got me men singers and women singers and the delights of the sons of men as musical instruments and that of all sorts. Verse 9, so I was great. And all and increased more than all that were before me in Jerusalem. Also, my wisdom remained with me. And whatsoever mine eyes desired, I kept not from them. I withheld not my heart from any joy, for my heart rejoiced in all my labor. And this was my portion of all my labor. Then I looked on all the works that my hands had wrought, and on the labor that I had labored to do. And behold, all was vanity and vexation of spirit. And there was no profit 
under the sun. Quite a statement, isn't it? He said, whatever I wanted to do, I did it. My heart had a desire, I fulfilled it. I mean, think about that, right? Think about that what, that, what that would actually be like. I mean, what's something you want that you wish you could have? Boy, somebody asked me the, the other day, if you could have any car, what would it be? If you could live anywhere, where would you live? If you could have anybody do anything and build anything, whatever you wanted, what would it be? We'd probably get a lot of different answers just in this room tonight. Solomon said, I did all that. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Right? Because we live sometimes like, well, yeah, I mean, but that's not reality, right? We have to live in reality. Solomon didn't have to live in reality. He had so much money, whatever he wanted, he could have. That was his reality. He didn't have to live in our reality. It just, it, it, he bought it. He built it. He did it. He said, even my work, my labor that I did, I rejoiced in it. He, he wasn't some lazy guy who just sat around not doing anything. He, he pursued things. He tried things. He he, he discovered things. He learned things. He built stuff. This was a hardworking man. This was a man who developed his skills. This was a man who learned everything he could learn. We might nowadays call him a renaissance man. He, he supported the arts. He, he learned about music. He had all these servants. He, he built buildings. He figured out better ways to farm. I mean, this was a guy who pursued everything good, in a lot of ways, that we would say that there is to pursue in life. We would look at this guy and say, wow, he's a great entrepreneur. He's a great business person. He, he's, he's great with people. He's great with all this stuff. He is so powerful and so good. And boy, if he lived today, there'd be all kinds of pictures of him. And there'd be news stories done about him. There would be all kinds of things because this was the guy that everybody wanted to follow and everybody wanted to be like. He had it all. And at the end, he said, all was vanity and vexation of spirit, and there was no profit under the sun. Let me encourage you tonight, if you're trying to strive after one of these things that Solomon worked to get, hoping that whatever it is that you're trying to get is going to make you happy and satisfy you, stop. It doesn't bring the satisfaction that you're looking for. You say, well, you don't know. No, but God does. And Solomon did because he tried and it didn't work for him. It's not going to work for you either. God didn't put this in the Bible just for an interesting story. He put it here to instruct us and teach us and help us. But so many times, don't we let the things of this world and our work and all this other stuff fill us up and we think that's going to really make us happy and then it doesn't. And people pursue and pursue and pursue and then it it's empty. I mean, you turn on the TV, you see all kinds of craziness. These dating shows where they're bringing people on and hoping that they might fall in love. I'm looking for love. That's not going to bring you happiness. Well, the world says it will. None of this brings you happiness apart from God. Here's the thing. Some of God's greatest gifts, if we try to enjoy them apart from God, they, they just make us, leave us empty. We say, but it's a good thing. Like, is love a good thing? Well, sure. But trying to enjoy love outside of God's plan for your life is going to leave you feeling empty. And you're going to say, but I thought love was a good thing. 
Without God, nothing's good. People say, well, I thought you were supposed to work hard. I was raised to work hard and to provide for my family. And I did that. But I still didn't end up satisfied like I thought I would. If you tried to do it without God, you're going to find out like Psalm, it, it, it really is empty. It, it's empty. I did what I was supposed to do. I was a good citizen. I paid my bills. I, I, lived, I, I lived a good life. Folks, I am concerned that many Christians today, this is where they live. And we're going to get to the end, many people, and they're going to look back and they're going to go, what, what was the purpose anyway? Some people might not realize that till after they're dead and gone. Some people might realize when they're laying in the nursing home and go, what did I do? And there might be other people that realize a little bit earlier in life and they just kind of give up and walk away from it all. Why? Because they realize it was empty. Because it is. Life, every aspect of life is empty without God. And when you try to pursue those things, and you can, you can deceive yourself into thinking, well, I'm doing good stuff. But it's not good if it's apart from God. Jesus said it this way, there is none good but God. Just not. You say, why? Well, I didn't kill anybody, or <laughs> I didn't rob any banks, and I didn't do this. You might as well have. Because that's going to bring you the same satisfaction that all the other stuff, right? It, it's just empty. Don't run after things that are empty. It doesn't bring fulfillment. Because here's the reality. If God gave you a purpose and you live your life apart from God's purpose because you're living for yourself, selfish things, even if they're quote-unquote good things, are still not God's things, so it's still sin. And if I'm not fulfilling the purpose that God has for me in this life, then why am I here anyway? I'm here in hope. And that's the, that's the encouragement. If you're outside of God's will for your life, God has hope. He's long-suffering. He's merciful. He's loving. He, he said, come on, get back in. I'm not done with you yet. That's the encouraging thing. Because it's easy to go, wow, <laughs> then, then why didn't He just kill us all right now? Because He loves you. Because He's long-suffering. If we all got what we deserved, He would just wipe us all out right now. But He doesn't give us what we deserve. That's grace. That's a good thing. So, let me give you His final assessment here. Verse 12, down through the end of chapter 2. He says, And I turn myself to behold wisdom and madness and folly. For what can the man do that cometh after the king? even that which hath been already done. In other words, who, who's going to follow after me and try to better what I did? I did it all. You can't follow me. I had all the money. I had all the wisdom. I had all the opportunity. No one can top what I did. That's basically what he's saying. He says, Then I saw that wisdom excelleth folly as far as light excelleth darkness. So, so wisdom was better than folly, but he still says wisdom is emptiness without God. Notice he says in verse 14, The wise man's eyes are in his head, but the fool walketh in darkness. And I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. So this is the thing he could say. You could argue that wisdom is better than folly. From a human standpoint, you'd be correct. Even wisdom apart from God, you could argue, is better than folly. But here's the problem. He says at the end of verse 14, 
I myself perceived also that one event happeneth to them all. What event happens to the wise man and to the foolish man? He died. They both die. They both die. So while it might have looked better and you might have contributed to society living as a wise person, but if you did it apart from God, you're going to die just like the foolish guy is going to die. So what then? He says, then I said in my heart, as it happeneth to the fool, so it happeneth even to me. We're both going to die. And why was I then more wise? <laughs> why did I spend all this energy and effort trying to be a wise person if I'm just going to die anyway? Right? Then, said I, and then I said in my heart that this also is vanity. For there is no remembrance of the wise more than of the fool forever. In other words, we're, we're all going to be forgotten at some point. Seeing that which now is in the days to come shall all be forgotten. Here's the question, the end of verse 16. And how dieth the wise man? As the fool, the same way. You can be the richest guy in the world. And when you lay down and take your last breath, it's not going to be any different than the criminal locked in prison for all of his foolish ways and wicked things that he did in his life, you're both going to breathe your last breath and you're both going to die. And look at his conclusion in 17. Therefore, I hated life. See, this is where you can get to if you just pursue after fulfillment in things apart from God. Eventually, you will get to the place where you just hate life. And I've met some people, I think, that were either there or really close to there. Maybe you know some people like that too. I hate my life. He says, because the work that is wrought under the sun is grievous unto me for all is vanity and vexation of spirit. Verse 18, he continues on, yea, I hated all my labor which I had taken under the sun, because I should leave it unto the man that shall be after me. And who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? He says, even all this work, right? I, I built this kingdom. Isn't this interesting about Solomon? He builds this kingdom, amasses all this wealth. Who came after Solomon in Israel? Next king. Rehoboam. What happened under Rehoboam? If you know your history, the kingdom was divided because Rehoboam did not do things well. He was a fool. In fact, his advisors, the Bible tells us, this is you can find this in the Scripture, his advisors came to him, the old men, the men who had been Solomon's advisors. And Rehoboam said to them, How can I be a good king? And they said to him, If you want to be a good king... You need to lessen the burden that your father placed on the kingdom. See, even though Solomon, for the most part, was, had a lot of peace in his kingdom, a lot of good things going on, he also taxed the people very heavily. He had to support this lifestyle, right? And so the advisor said, Rehoboam, you ought to reduce taxes. That'll, you'll, you'll be well-liked as a king if you do that. Then his, his, his buddies came around, Rehoboam's friends came around. They said, no, Rehoboam, don't, don't lower taxes. I mean, he was a good politician, right? Raise taxes, raise taxes. You have more for yourself. 
And so then the Bible says Rehoboam listened to the younger men instead of the older. And he went back to those older men. And he basically says, my father's thigh is going to be like my pinky finger. In other words, as heavy as his leg might have been, my finger is going to be that heavy. I'm just going to increase your burden. And guess what? Kingdom revolted. So Solomon did all the work, right? He says, but who am I going to leave it to? It might be a fool. It was. It was. And all of your work, all of your energy that you put into it, your labor might end up being nothing. You might have built some great stuff in your life, and then it gets left to a fool, and they lose it all. And he goes, so what was the purpose anyway? He says that 19, Who knoweth whether he shall be a wise man or a fool? Yet shall he have rule over all my labor, wherein I have labored. You think about all that time Solomon spent building those vineyards and building those orchards and those beautiful things. Even history speaks of the beautiful things that Solomon built. Talk about these hanging gardens that were, it's one of the wonders of the ancient world. But if you go over there today, it's nowhere to be found. Why? Because fools took over. He says, wherein have I, show, I have showed myself wise under the sun. This is also vanity. Therefore, I went about to cause my heart to despair of all the labor which I took under the sun. For there is a man whose labor is in wisdom and in knowledge and in equity. Yet to a man that hath not labored therein shall he leave it for his portion. This also is vanity and a great evil. He says, just leaving a big inheritance to the people behind me is empty for what hath man of all his labor and of the vexation of his heart, wherein if he had labored under the sun? For all his days are sorrow and his travail grief, yea, his heart taketh not rest in the night. This is also vanity. There is nothing better for a man than that he should eat and drink and that he should make his soul enjoy good in his labor. This also I saw that it was from the hand of God. So here he's bringing us back to God again. He says, I realize... Just living your life, taking care of the responsibilities that you're given. There's nothing better than that. Interesting. Kind of sounds like be content with such things as you have. God's given it to you. Be content with it. Pursue the opportunities that God puts in front of you. But if God doesn't give you everything that someone else has, be content with what you have. Because remember, you're here to fulfill God's purpose for your life, which is a really good thing. God's not mean to give you a purpose and have you fulfill that purpose. And your purpose is probably different than my purpose in one way or another. And that's not God being mean. It's God as your creator. And He's actually putting you to the purpose that's going to make you the happiest and fulfill you the most and give you everything that you need. Think about it. If, if we're trying to build an engine, right, and imagine that you're all parts of the engine. Anthony over here, he's, let's say he's the flywheel, and Lewis is a piston, and Joe, he's just a little flathead screw, you know, just a little piece. But if we try to install him where you're supposed to go and you where he's supposed to go, it's all going to be broken and messed up and it's never going to run. 
But if we take all those little pieces, and they're all different. Some are bigger, some are heavier, some move, some, some just sit in one place. But you put all those things together where they're at. If you think of, now we know engine parts don't have feelings. But if they did, they would feel good about themselves because they were accomplishing a greater purpose than just themselves. Be content with what you have because trying to get more just to consume it on yourself... Going outside of God's plan for your life isn't going to bring you happiness. He says, verse 25, For who can eat or who else can hasten hereunto more than I? For God giveth to a man that is good in his sight wisdom. God gives wisdom. Oh, sounds like Proverbs now. Fear of the Lord. Beginning of wisdom, right? And knowledge. And, oh, here's another one we haven't even seen yet in this book. Joy. But to the sinner he giveth travail, to gather and to heap up, that he may give to him that is good before God. Kind of sounds like that servant that worked and, and, and he did what his master said, and the other servant that didn't do what he was supposed to do, and the master took from that one and gave to the one who'd worked hard. God blesses his people. He says, this also is vanity and vexation of spirit. See, it's the vanity for the guy who's just trying to pile it up for himself because it's going to be taken away from him anyway. So here are these final four thoughts then to kind of summarize this and give us the assessment of it all. We have the comparison of wisdom and folly. And Solomon tells us, sure, wisdom could be argued to be better than folly, but there's one problem. Number two, the end of it all is death. We're all going to die. The wise man and the foolish man is going to die. Now, please don't misunderstand me. We know as a believer in Jesus Christ, we're looking forward to eternal life. But he's coming from the perspective of a worldly person who's looking at it without God. right? So the end of it all for a worldly person without God is death, whether you're wise or whether you're foolish. Number three, living for yourself means giving it all away. That's what he says here. I I worked hard, I did all this labor, but who knows, it might just get passed down to a fool. And then at the end of the chapter, he talks about how the, the foolish man, he travails and labors that he may give to him that is good before God. But finally, I think, and there's still a lot more to go in this message we're just getting started in the sermon. Solomon, a better preacher than I did, he could get all this in in a shorter period of time. We're taking a little more time to go through this. So keep coming back and we'll dig into this a little more. But the final conclusion I think we can see from here, living for God is the only way to bring purpose and fulfillment. Because without that, you're back in verses 17 and 18. Therefore, I hated life. Folks, I hope that this isn't you tonight, but if it is, there's good news. You're still here. There's hope. God has a plan for your life. Confess your sin. Confess your selfishness. Confess your pride to Him and live your life for His purpose. But we say, well, I'm afraid. (laughs) Well, but I don't know. Trust God. If you could trust Him with your soul to save you from your sin, you can trust Him with your daily life. He'll take care of what you need. 
But if I do this, if I really go all in for God, I'm going to just trust God. Trust God. Trust and obey. There's no other way to be happy in Jesus but to trust and obey. And I hope you keep thinking about these things. And, and maybe you say, Pastor, I am thankful. That's not me. I am fulfilled. I am satisfied because I am trying to live for the Lord. If that's you tonight, I, though I want you to have a heart for and a concern and care for people that are stuck in this place. There's a lot of people in our world stuck here. And when you find somebody like this, it helps you, kind of like a doctor who studies a, diff, a, a certain disease. He knows how to diagnose it because he sees the symptoms. You know, he says, oh, if you have this issue going on and this problem and these certain symptoms, then we know this is the problem. What are the symptoms of a person like this? Well, somebody who hates life, somebody who's discouraged, somebody who seems to be working really hard, but it's not really bringing them the satisfaction that they hope to. Remember lesson number one, message number one a couple weeks ago, the title was The Treadmill. Because that's where we're kind of, I'm running, I'm not getting anywhere. If you meet somebody like that, you can encourage them. Let them know, here's the diagnosis. Here's what you need. You need the Lord. And there's hope. And it's in Jesus. And your sins can be forgiven. See, a lot of those folks say, well, I, I'm not a sinner. I'm fine. I'm okay. I'm not that bad of a person. Look, I do all this good stuff. I built these buildings. I, I earn money. I take care of my family. I till the ground. I grow stuff. I'm a good person but why aren't you satisfied? Well, I, I don't know. I'm trying. I hope maybe I will someday. When I buy this, then I will be. Or when I have this, then it'll be good. When this happens in, me, in my life, then it'll be good. When I get married, then it'll be good. Whatever it is. No, let me tell you, the only true satisfaction is found in the Lord. It's found in the Lord. That's what's so special, I think, about this book of the Bible because we're getting to go down and explore things and consider stuff that you and I might not physically have the power to do on our own. But we can listen as Solomon tells us his own personal testimony. And I'll just say this in passing and we'll close here, but we'll come back to this. A lot of Bible scholars think Solomon wrote this book, and I'll show you why later on. He wrote this book when he was a really old man. Looking back on his life, you say, why did his son end up to be such a fool? Because probably Solomon spent so much of his life living for himself and pursuing after these empty things that that's all his son knew. And by the time Solomon finally comes to the right conclusion, he's so old that his son isn't really listening to him anymore. That's why it's so important as parents, right? Young parents, we have some young parents in here. We've got to be walking with the Lord right now. Because our children need it right now. They could end up like Rehoboam someday. That'd be very sad. Because maybe we figured out what we figured out so late in our life. It's not too late for us, but it's too late for our kids to hear it from us. Let's be faithful to the Lord. Father, I pray that you'd help us to think on these things. These are heavy things. As I've been meditating on this myself, it's these are weighty matters that I think call for a lot of introspection into our own lives, how we spend our time and what our purpose and drive really is. Pray that you'd encourage us, though, with the hope that is here and the challenge for each one of us. Lord, if there's somebody here tonight that's living 
in some way, no matter how small, but in some way apart from you, I pray that they would consider your truth and they would trust your word and trust your Holy Spirit. And they would come to you and walk in truth and righteousness and obedience to your word and faith, trusting that you can do the work that needs to be done. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen.